hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Men have always had the obvious advantage of inspecting their genitalia with essentially no effort on their part. For women, it's a little more challenging. Combine that with the fact that most young girls are not taught the proper terminology or parts of their own anatomy, and it's not surprising that far too many women are not familiar with the term vulva or what it includes. When I first opened the Vulvar Health Program at Northwestern, the most common question I got was, why? What kinds of things can happen to a vulva? Lots of things, which is why I'm so glad to be joined by Dr. Jill Kraft, a clinical associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the George Washington University and one of a handful of specialists in vulvar conditions. Dr. Kraft is located in Washington, D.C. and sees patients at the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders. She's written multiple scientific articles, is active not only in academic circles, but also on Instagram, where she has single-handedly educated thousands, if not millions of women about their vulvas. And we're going to spend some time talking about things that may lead to one of the most maddening, frustrating symptoms in all of gynecology, the itchy vulva. Welcome, Dr. Kraft. Thank you for having me. All right. You spent a large part of your day explaining what exactly a vulva is. So before we get into the meat of today's topic, give everyone a quick anatomy lesson. Absolutely. So uh, the first thing I always tell patients is it's so important to know what's going on with your vulva. We, we look at every other part of our skin and the vulva is the outside part. And it's important to know what's happening there. So the first thing I always tell patients is the vulva is not the vagina. So many people will come to my office and they'll say, I have I have itching of my vagina and I say, well, is it really the inside part? And then we get, we get to it and we realize it's actually the vulva. Um, the vulva is so important because it's the center for sexual pleasure, the clitoris, and it's also the center for most sexual pain conditions, the vestibule. So we're going to talk about what this means. So going from Outside to inside, you have the labia majora, which are the areas that have pubic hair on them naturally. And then inside, you have the labia minora. And the labia minora can come in all different shapes and sizes. One side can be longer than the other. Um, they can be different colors. They can be a little darker. They can be a little bit more pink. And it's really important to know that there is variation in how our parts look. And then inside to that, you have the what's called the vulvar vestibule. And most people don't really know what that is. But for me, as a gynecologist who specializes in this, it's one of the most important parts. The urethra, where our urine comes out, is located in the vestibule. And then there's gland openings that produce our natural lubrication. They're on each side of the urethra on the top. And then there's gland openings at the bottom as well. So when people have dryness and irritation, um, it can be related to these gland openings. Uh, in addition, the vestibule has a ton of nerve endings. So the vagina, the inside part that we can't see, really has very few nerve endings. It's really the vestibule. So when people have things like yeast infections or vaginal discharge, it's really when that discharge and that yeast hit the vestibule that we really have all the symptoms that people describe. The vestibule is where it's all happening. I always tell women that the vestibule is the door to the vagina, and it doesn't matter how nice the room is if you can't get through the door. So we have to deal with the vestibule, which is, as you say, is where the, the pain and the itching and, and women, they, they say it's their vagina and you and I know it's not. All right. So we always just, you, you mentioned if someone has something wrong with their skin, they look at it, but it's a little more challenging to look at the vulva and to look at the vestibule. So give some tips without doing gymnastics, how a woman could get a good look at her vulva. 
Yes. So you really just need a good mirror that has a tilt to it. And there's different ways that you can do it, whatever feels most comfortable, but just get that mirror out, take a look and, and just mark your, you know, look at your different parts and go from outside to inside, top to bottom, and make sure that you can identify everything. The other important thing, one of the most important areas is the clitoris. And we really can only see the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Um, the glands clitoris is that little area right at the top um, where the labia come together, you have the clitoris. And then importantly, you have a little hood or a prepuce that covers the clitoris. And there can be a lot of variation in that as well. Some people have more of a covering. Some people have less of a covering. Some people have a larger clitoris. Some people have a smaller clitoris. So remember, there is a lot of, a lot of difference that we can see. Um, as a gyne as gynecologist, we know this. But in general, people, they've really only seen theirs or they haven't. Um, so it's really important to know that um, a lot of this is normal variation. And the other important thing is to be able to pull that hood off of the clitoris. If the clitoris is completely covered and you can't see it, or if the hood, you can't pull the hood off and you're having decreased sensation, then this is something you should really bring up with your doctor. Just like your car, you got to look under the hood. <laughs> Do exactly. not forget to look under the hood if something is not right. I am sure that I am not the only one who gets crotch selfies. And when we first started getting crotch selfies, I'm like, no, I can't control what goes out there on the internet. But now we actually have a HIPAA compliant way of people sending us photos. And what I have found is that it's very useful, not only because sometimes people can't get in and we need to see what's going on, but you can enlarge a, a, a selfie. And I think that that's also kind of a, a an interesting, cool way to, to get a good look at your own anatomy. But the problem is it's really hard to truly do it as a selfie. You have to find someone to help you, hopefully someone you know who normally looks at your vulva. What, what's your take on, on selfies? What do you tell people? Oh my goodness. I have so many patients that have a separate file in their phone of just vulvar pictures. Uh, granted, my patients, a lot of my patients have chronic conditions. So I completely understand that. Um, but yes, that's another tool that you can use would be to take a vulva selfie, um, depending on your comfort level. But really any way that you do it, it's important to really just take a look, get a baseline, because the reality is that we really don't look until there's a problem. That's right. People have yes. to know what's normal because they look for the first time when they have itching or pain, and then they see something which is perfectly normal. <laughs> they call me or come in in a panic and say, oh my God, you know, one lady is longer than the other. That would be normal, you know, but, but of course. So, all right, I want to divide this discussion into three parts because when we talk about vulvar itching, very often women either just suffer or they assume that it's yeast and they keep treating it. And then of course it doesn't get better or even more frustrating. They go to the doctor and they walk out with out a diagnosis or the wrong diagnosis. And we could spend a whole hour talking about why doctors are not helpful or trained in this, but we're not going to go there today. I want to be solutions driven here. So there are three things that can potentially cause vulvar itching, itching, um, irritants, uh, infections, and then dermatologic conditions. So let's start with vulvar irritants. Yes. So the, the first place to start is vagina and vulvar self-care. Everybody always asks this question. And so the, so the, the important thing is that the vagina does not need much care at all. It's a self-cleaning oven. And so when we're talking about things like douching or putting things in the vagina to freshen or fragrance it. No, we don't want to go there. That's really disrupting all that healthy bacteria that's that we need in our bodies to keep things functioning as they should. Now, when we're talking about the vulva, there are some reasons why you would apply certain products to the vulva. But the issue is that a lot of people put things on that area or there's things that touch that area that are actually causing a lot more harm than good. So when we're talking about things to avoid, uh, we, you really want to look at your, your ingredient list on the back of that bottle or that jar. You really want to look because 
the one thing that I see that really irritates people are soaps and detergents. Mm-hmm. And we can see these in shampoos where they run down onto the area. We can see this in body washes and and soap products. And really stop right there a second. I want you Mm -hmm. to spend another minute talking about body washes. These companies that are spending billions of dollars and making women think that they have to buy some kind of special vulvar wash to control their vulvar pH. And you and I know that the pH is important inside the vagina. It is not important on the outside. So What's your take on these vulvar washes? Absolutely. So less is more is generally what I say. And if you do feel the need to use something on that area, I really encourage people to use a cleanser like you would use on your face. And there's a difference between a body cleanser or facial cleanser and a soap or detergent. Soaps and detergents generally dry out the skin, whereas cleansers generally don't. And so I recommend using something for your entire body where if there is wash down, it's not going to cause any irritation. And you really don't want to put any of these products inside the labia minora on the vestibule or internally. It's a bit like your your lips and your mouth. You would never put your facial cleanser in your mouth. And so you would never put any sort of body product inside the vagina. That's such a good point because I actually have not been telling my patients that I talked to them about how to cleanse the vulva, but I have not really thought in terms of what's just running down from the rest of the body. The the, the women that are listening to this podcast, because it is the menopause podcast, are very often using uh, vaginal and vulvar lubricants for sexual activity. And in my lubricant episode, of course, I go on and on and on about how many of these water-based lubricants are dehydrating and toxic. So what do you tell women about, about lubricants? Yes. So it's really important to consider that perhaps the lubricant may be causing problems if you are having irritation and you may want to change things up. I want to return for a second to the the whole idea of fragrances because a lot of women either have an actual odor and you don't want to cover the odor up or perceived odor because they've been taught that it's nasty down there, which is, is, you know, it's just sad. And so women feel that they have to use a fragrance shampoo or even a fabric softener. And those are all vulvar irritants as well, correct? They absolutely are. And this isn't for everybody, but if you are predisposed to sensitivities of your skin, um, then it's important to look at this. Um, In general, it's better to use like a wool ball uh, to soften your clothing rather than a fabric softener that has chemicals and fragrances Mm -hmm. in it. And if you actually look at these products, it's really eye-opening as far as the ingredients. They will just list fragrance and not even tell you what chemicals are actually in that fragrance. Um, And so these can be drying and irritating to the skin. And it's important to steer clear, go with natural sourced fragrances. If you do like a fragrance or even better fragrance free products, if you can't pronounce it, don't put it on your vulva (laughs) is my rule of thumb. Let's talk about the impact of incontinence, because in the 50 plus crowd, about one out of three women do have problems with involuntary loss of urine. How does that impact on vulvar hygiene and vulvar irritation? Absolutely. Anytime there's a wet environment, um, usually people that have incontinence are using a pad or a panty liner, um, which can have ingredients in it like fragrances and chemicals that can cause irritation. It's not uncommon for us to see an irritant or an allergic reaction in the vulva or an itch scratch itch cycle called lichen simplex chronicus, which is when it goes a step further and there's scratching, which makes the skin a bit thicker and then causes uh, micro abrasions or little small cuts, which injure the skin. And then it kind of goes into a different cycle. Um, But we often see things like this. And so I also see this in my vaginitis patients. So patients that have vaginal discharge and they're wearing panty liners every day to catch the vaginal discharge. And then that's causing additional issues. And again, I always like to look back and see why they're having an aerobic vaginitis, what's going on, and to try to correct that. There's this 
idea that if there's a product that is specifically intended for the vagina or the vulva, that it's okay to use. And that's one of the big disconnects that we really have to address is that if a woman goes and buys a product such as a scented pad or a vulvar wash, that could be the culprit. And very often when we see women in our center, and I'm sure you see the same thing, just by eliminating that vulvar irritant can turn things around. Absolutely. And if you go into that aisle that has all of these products, which I try to steer clear of when I go to the grocery store. It makes store me crazy to walk down that aisle. <laughs> I can't do it. It's too stressful. But you'll often see gynecologist approved or gynecologist recommended. And that means absolutely nothing. No, no, there it means no something. It means they found one gynecologist that they paid a lot of money to say approve this. And they go, oh, OK, I recommend this. And that makes it gynecologist approved. Exactly. So buyer beware. Um, mm. Really, you do not need these products and they can be causing more harm than good. So it's always good to look at what's going in and around that area. How do you feel about baby wipes? I hate cleansing. them. <laughs> yeah. No. So, so wipes are very drying. Oftentimes wipes have alcohol as an ingredient and they can be extraordinarily drying and irritating to the skin. A lot of people are using um, baby wipes, especially people that have fecal incontinence or leakage mm -hmm. of stool. Um, it's just, it's, it's a common, common irritant that I see. And I often say it's best to either have a hook on the day um, if you need to cleanse that area with some water or a peri squirt bottle. Yeah. I also recommend a product called water wipes, which is basically water and, and, and women, you do not need to rub too hard. The rubbing is a problem, you know, air dry pat. If you're going to use toilet paper, make sure that it's unscented, no colors, just pat dry. All right. So we just made a whole point of saying that a lot of people think it's yeast and it's actually an irritant, but sometimes it is yeast. So let's talk about yeast a little bit. How often is vulvar itching yeast? And then talk a little bit about the difference between vaginal yeast and vulvar yeast. This is one of the most common issues that I see. And I see very complex patients. Uh, by the time they get to me, a person has seen an average of seven doctors um, for their vulvar issues. And it always surprises me when this is the diagnosis of vulvar yeast, because I think, how can this possibly be missed by so many people? But it often is. And I'll explain why. So yeast lives on and in us, among us. But when there's an overgrowth or a certain yeast species, then people can have symptoms. And most people are familiar with the classic vaginal yeast infection, the white clumpy discharge, the itching, burning, discomfort, swelling, and so forth. Um, and that, like I said, often you feel that at the vaginal opening. So within the labia minora at the opening of the vagina. And this is what our gynecologists usually test for, right? They do a vaginal swab. So a Q-tip swab that goes inside the vagina that tests for yeast. And oftentimes I'll have patients that will come and they'll say, I definitely don't have a yeast infection because all of my swabs have been negative. And then I take a look, I do an exam and I say, oh my goodness, you have yeast on the skin, of the vulva, around the anus, between the anus and the vaginal opening called the perineum. These are very common places to have yeast. And then some people have different species of yeast on the skin folds where their legs meet the groin. And these are treated a little bit different, but these are things that I pick up all the time that can cause a lot of itch and a lot of discomfort. And I often tell my patients, and they, they really like this, I say, this is like a baby diaper rash. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, a lot of patients, their eyes get wide and they say, oh my goodness, that's exactly what it's like. And they just didn't put two and two together that there can be yeast on the skin of the outside. Um, and so this is something that I pick up quite often. And what does it look like? Because we were encouraging women to take a look. So what are they going to see if they have vulvar yeast? Yes. So oftentimes there's redness, which can be tricky. Redness is very tricky because redness can indicate that something's wrong, or you can have some redness that comes and goes that can be normal. Like when you get out of the shower and take a look. 
Um, but redness, there can be little dots of red spots on the outside of the area of redness. Um, there can be little small paper cuts. We call those fissures. There can be swelling. There can be a little bit of peeling. Um, sometimes there's some skin peeling, depending on the type of yeast that we see. And generally and a lot of it. Because what you're describing also looks like a lot of other skin conditions. Let me ask you this. You know, um, of course, if someone is putting cream inside their vagina to treat their vulvar yeast, it's not going to work because they're only treating the inside. But a lot of women, of course, are using fluconazole, uh, diflucan, which is an oral pill to treat yeast. Is, is that going to help vulvar yeast? It can. It depends on the regimen that you use. There's not a, there's not a lot of really good research on this. Um, if you use a long long-term regimen, I think that it can be helpful. There's also some topical anti-yeast medications that can be helpful as well. Um, but again, diagnosis is super important. Yeah. And then really, you know, these tend to be recurrent. So even if you treat the yeast, it tends to come back and come back again. And that's why it's so important to not only identify the contributing factors, but really look what's around the area or what's inside the body that might be keeping this cycle going. You know, recurrent yeast is, is so challenging. And, and sometimes, of course, it's not yeast. I mean, we all have had the experience as gynecologists of women coming back again and again, or just calling you and asking for a prescription because they keep saying my yeast infection is back. And more often than not, it's, it's not yeast. But then that's why it's so important to actually go in and get examined and all that. But what I want to talk about is for the woman that it is, the, mm -hmm. the woman who does truly have recurrent yeast. And um, what, what do you tell those women without getting into specific protocols, but how do you treat those women differently than someone who just has that one off? Yes. So you really want to, this is the importance of really looking at the person as a whole, because there's medical conditions like diabetes that can make someone more prone to yeast or more prone to different species of yeast that may not be as easily treated with an oral medication like fluconazole or diflucan. You really want to look at what environmentally um, is going on, uh, you know, changing out of sweaty gym clothes or or wet swimsuits, what's contributing to this? The literature on diet and yeast infections is really mixed, but a lot of my patients will tell me that when they eat more high sugar foods, they'll feel more of a yeast infection flare or more yeast um, going on. And so I think that there is some sort of connection with diet and it's certainly a good recommendation. And so what I start with for chronic yeast is really, um, we'll get to treatment. That's certainly important, but really to change the environment. Um, so diet and, uh, and environmental exposure, breathable fabrics, changing out of wet clothing, avoid reusing towels and underwear, um, washing, uh, washing your towels and underwear on the hot setting. Um, and really these things help to prevent reintroduction of yeast once you actually treat it. You know, I think also we don't pay enough attention to the fact that yeast can be resistant, just like bacteria. And we use the typical things to treat yeast. And typically women do not get yeast cultures. And of course, because we run vulvar centers, we do a lot of yeast cultures and we say, oh, well, of course it hasn't worked because the particular strain of yeast that you have will not respond to a typical antibiotic. And there's an, a new drug that I want to talk about for a second. I don't know about you, but I cannot pronounce it. The, the, the scientific name is, and I'm going to spell it so you all know what I'm struggling with. I-B-R-E-X-A-F-U-N-G-E-R-P. Are you kidding? So first of all, do you know how to pronounce that? And then tell us about it. <laughs> yes. So what we're talking about here is Ibrexafungurp. Oh, that was pretty good. Is, oh, thank <laughs> you. And this goes by the brand name Brexafem. Um, this was approved last June. So June of 2021. It's an oral medication. And the exciting thing about this one is that fluconazole, which is the only other oral medication that we commonly use for vaginal yeast infections. There are other oral azoles, but we don't tend to use them as much because we have to do some liver monitoring with them. But this one um, is the first oral medication that has been introduced in over 20 years because 
fluconazole, um, actually, it was developed in the mid in the early to mid 80s, and then it um, became available in 1988. So it's been a while since we've had another option. Um, and so the difference is that Brexifem, it actually, it's a different class. So it's not an azole. Um, it actually kills the yeast instead of suppressing it. Um, and as far there's there's some good research. Um, the only issue is when we look at efficacy, meaning how well it works, because that's what we care about, right? Does it work? Um, really, the head-to-head trials looking at Brexifem versus the, the standard, which is fluconazole, they compared a one dose of fluconazole, so one pill, to the Brexifem, and then they showed that it was pretty comparable. The only issue is, I don't know about you, but I often don't give one uh, dose of fluconazole, especially for people that have issues with recurrent yeast. Mm. Um, I often give a two dose or a three dose um, regimen. So one pill every three days for three times. And then there's also long-term uh, dosage options for fluconazole where you take it once weekly. So we still need some more research to really see, but I think the most important thing about Brexifem, the thing I'm most excited about is it's actually effective against non-albicans forms of yeast. So the most common form of yeast with a yeast infection is Canada albicans. And that makes up a large majority of the yeast infections, but we're starting to see different types of yeast like Canada glabrata, especially in the setting of diabetes and and, and different factors and with fluconazole resistance and so forth. And so Brexifem is a good oral option, I think, for those patients that we didn't have before. And and also people who are allergic to diflucan, who are allergic to the azoles, which is some, some women. I think that women need to know that if they are having problems with with chronic yeast or recurrent yeast, that it is appropriate to ask their doctors to do a yeast culture because women assume that they are getting a culture when very often they're just doing a quick laboratory test to see if yeast is there without looking necessarily at the type of yeast or what it's sensitive to. And the way you know if you've had a culture is if they give you your result the same day, it was not a culture. If you get the result the next day, it was not a culture. (laughs) These cultures take time and sometimes you do need to ask for it because it's not automatic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and the other, you know, exciting thing is there's actually a super new oral antifungal medication that was just FDA approved last Ooh, week. Tell me, I don't know about that one. Yes. So it's in the azole family. Um, so same class as fluconazole. It's called, uh, and I'm going to butcher this one. <laughs> it's called otoseconazole. And the interesting thing about this medication is it has a really super long half-life. What that means is that it works for a really long time. And when I say that, I mean like almost a year. Oh, come on. But a year, really? Yes. But there's a catch. There is a catch. So <laughs> nine the, million dollars. No. Exactly. So unfortunately, um, this medication cannot be taken in pregnancy because it has been li- linked to birth defects of the eye. And so it is not FDA approved for anyone that can possibly get pregnant. Okay, but this is really good news because this is a menopause podcast. Yes, Yay. absolutely. And we're saying there's good things about being in menopause, and this is clearly one of them. Yes. So it's, it's approved for anyone in who's postmenopausal. Um, yes. Or someone who's had a hysterectomy or their ovaries removed. Um, unfortunately it doesn't talk about IUDs and we know that IUDs are just as effective as tubal ligation. It is okay for people who've had a tubal ligation. So, but this is a win for our postmenopausal recurrent yeast people. So, um, so definitely something that is in the pipeline and we'll see when we can start prescribing it. So it's, it has not been, so it's been FDA approved, but it's not available yet. Correct. And I do want to be clear that all of these things we're talking about are prescription medications. These are not the -the over-the-counter yeast infections, I mean, yeast medications. So um, we will circle back at the end and talk about how to find someone who can help you with these problems, particularly if you've been frustrated with the care you've been getting. Let's move on to skin conditions, dermatologic conditions, of which there are so many, we could spend days talking about them. I've spent a lot of time, of course, talking about genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is the vulvar itching and dryness that's a result of lack of estrogen. And that's covered in episodes three and four. So we're not going to talk about it now. 
but a lot of women don't realize that you can have more than one thing going on. So they may go to their doctor and say, all right, I menopause, I need some estrogen for my vulva. They are using the estrogen and they are still having problems. So I would like to talk about other conditions, other dermatologic conditions that can cause vulvar itching. So yes, we know, I know where you're going with this one. I'll let you take it from here. So a large part of my practice is dermatologic conditions of the vulva. And the main one that I see is vulvar lichen sclerosis. And I know that sounds like a, like a mouthful there, but lichen basically means thickening and sclerosis translates to scarring. So it's an likely autoimmune condition. And the more research we do, the the more we're confident in saying that it is autoimmune. Um, And it affects the skin of the vulva as well as around the anal area. And it causes changes to the skin making it white in color, making it thicker. um, And changes to the labia where they can basically be sucked in a bit. There can be some covering of the clitoris. There can be some narrowing of the vaginal opening. And these changes can be subtle or these changes can be more pronounced. Um, And so this condition um, basically uh, happens in, we think about one in 300 women. Um, It can occur on other parts of the body, but that's less common. It's most likely in the genital region. And it's associated with other autoimmune conditions, mainly thyroid disorders, but a few others as well. And so this is, I see a lot of patients that have, um, that have lichen sclerosis and the thickening causes a lot of intense itching of the vulva. We often see it after menopause. um, And we think that might have to do with decreasing estrogen levels, which tend to be a little bit more protective of the symptom of itch. Uh, Lichen sclerosis can occur at any time in somebody's life. It can occur in children um, before they go through puberty. We often see they're very symptomatic. It can occur during the reproductive age years, and it's often misdiagnosed as yeast infections. And then it's most common commonly picked up after menopause because of the drop in estrogen causing more of the itching. But again, the basis of it is more of autoimmune. Lichen sclerosis is by far the most common dermatologic condition we see in our vulvar clinic. And it is also the most common condition that has been misdiagnosed or just missed entirely. I talked earlier uh, about using uh, photography to to look at your own vulva. And one of the things we have found to be very useful in our clinic when we are diagnosing and treating lichen sclerosis is we do use photography, not only to document what we see, but sometimes, as you said, it is very subtle. And it's not until we enlarge the picture and we all gather around a screen and look at these enlarged pictures and say, look, she has lichen sclerosis on the clitoral hood that no one had ever seen before. And that's why she's taking a hairbrush to her, her crotch. <laughs> Absolutely. That's I use vulvoscopy um, in my practice, which is describe what that is. A lot of people aren't familiar with vulvoscopy. Yes. So essentially, I have a microscope that allows me to look at the vulva, so the external area with magnification. And my microscope or colposcope or vulvoscope, it comes by different names, is connected to a screen. And so I actually project that image up on a screen and my patient is able to follow along and we can go from top to bottom, outside to inside, and we mark any skin changes that I see and and how they occur. And I think that's really helpful. Just to see it up there, um, because it really helps with when I describe how to treat this condition, which is often with a topical medication, it's important to know where that medication goes. And so knowing where the condition is and what's affected is really a big part of treatment. What is a woman going to see when she looks at her vulva if she has lichen sclerosis? Yes. So You can see what we call hypopigmentation, meaning loss of pigment or whitening of the skin. Um, You can see a crinkling appearance. Um, I often say it looks like wax paper. Um, We used to call it cigarette paper, but we don't really roll cigarettes anymore. So most people don't really know what that is. But the wax paper, um, you can see a crinkling appearance, um, and that's very indicative. And then we're really looking at 
changes of the labia, we can see loss of the labia minora, which are those um, internal uh, labia, as well as scarring around the clitoris um, and narrowing of the vaginal opening. The loss of labia, I think, is something that is the most surprising to women and sometimes the most disturbing because like you, when we see a woman in, in our in our center, we give her a hand mirror so that as we're inspecting her vulva, she can see what we're looking at. And when I point out that her labia minora are essentially disappearing from the bottom up and sometimes are entirely gone, because women don't look at their vulvas, they are very often shocked to see that. And while that can happen as a, as a consequence of menopause, it is something that we see all the time in, in lichen sclerosis. Absolutely. And I think that getting a diagnosis of lichen sclerosis can be pretty heavy, um, especially mm. if you're not a hundred percent sure what it means or how it's treated or what's involved. Um, and sometimes when you look online, it can be pretty <laughs> scary, um, especially because there is a small risk of vulvar cancer yeah. associated with this condition. We're going to go back to that in a second, but I want to talk about how it's diagnosed because as an expert, you can look and visually 90% of the time, you know what it is, but that's not always the case. Even experts like you sometimes aren't sure, especially if there's a lot of inflammation from scratching or products and all. And then of course, someone who's less experienced may not be sure. So talk about the diagnosis of lichen sclerosis that's definitive. Yes. Um, so the definitive diagnosis is a skin biopsy of the area. And so a biopsy is basically when we numb the skin up and then we take a little snip of the skin and we send that to a pathologist who's a doctor that is skilled at looking at this under the microscope. Um, and so they are looking for skin changes at the cellular level that indicate different skin conditions, um, including lichen sclerosis. And so they're looking at inflammation and, and different things in the skin layers. So that's the definitive diagnosis. Now, as you said, lichen sclerosis can be diagnosed clinically as well. However, there are certain instances where it's absolutely essential to do a biopsy. Um, one of those instances is if you suspect a precancer or a cancer, it's really important to do a biopsy. If you're not sure what the diagnosis is, it's very important to do a biopsy. Like you said, there can be uh, two conditions happening at the same time. It's not uncommon for me to see someone with that itch, scratch, itch cycle, like in simplex chronicus mm -hmm. on top of like in sclerosis or a vulvar yeast or a bacterial super infection on top of like in sclerosis. And so um, when in doubt, it's always best um, to do a biopsy for a definitive diagnosis. You mentioned pathology and you know, we know that there are pathologists and then there are pathologists. And it is not unusual for us to have a woman come and say, well, I did have a biopsy and I look at the report from the pathologist and it's really not thorough enough. Talk about dermatopathology. Yes. So there is a subfield, just like there's subfields in different parts of medicine where people specialize in different things. And so it's always best to have these biopsies read by someone who's skilled in identifying skin conditions of this area. It just gives you a more accurate diagnosis. Talk without getting into the specifics. Can you talk just generally about treatment and how long does a woman need to be treated if she has lichen sclerosis? So the gold standard of treatment for lichen sclerosis is a topical high potency corticosteroid. Um, basically what that means is a steroid that comes in an ointment form. There's also creams and gels and so forth. I'm a firm believer that ointment is preferable. Um, creams can have alcohol in their base and they can, they can be more irritating. So I, I recommend to my patients a ointment. Um, the one that you'll see in all the studies is a medication called clobetazole. However, there's other types of high potency steroids that can be used as well. And so um, if there is issue with clobetazole, then there are other options that are available depending on your sensitivities. For example, if someone's sensitive to parabens or so forth. Yeah. Um, the way that you apply the medication is just 
just as important as the right medication and the right diagnosis. I see this all the time. Um, people will put some topical steroid on top of the skin and they feel like they're not getting better. Um, this, the inflammation in lichen sclerosis is deep down in the bottom of the skin. It's um, right above the basement membrane. And so that medication needs to penetrate needs to go through all those thickened skin layers to get to where the inflammation is. Remember, steroids fight inflammation. That's how they work. They decrease inflammation to allow the skin to regenerate above it. And so I have my patients soak prior to applying the topical steroid, um, and that allows the steroid to get to where it needs to go. Um, and as far as when you say soak, you mean, I'm assuming you mean in, in like a warm water, whether it's they a bath or a shower, but just make sure the area is, is warm and moisturized and, and hydrated. Yes. So it can be a, a tub soak or it can be a sits bath. Um, if there is a lot of thickening of the skin, then I do recommend actually submerging the area. Um, and you want to use warm water, not hot water. Hot water can make the area more itchy. Um, and so you want to do lukewarm water soaking. Once someone gets into remission or the skin becomes a little more healthy, then I'm fine with them doing a shower prior. Um, but in, it depends on the level of of the disease that I see um, as far as my individualized recommendations. When I talk about treating vulvar dryness from lack of estrogen, I always tell people that you can slather on that estrogen. It's fine, you know, from clitoris to anus, just put it everywhere. But that is not the case with these high potency steroids. No, these need to be used in in a very specific way. And I see people get into trouble um, when they use too much of it or if they're not applying it in the right way. So these steroids can make you more prone to vulvar yeast. Um, it, they can make you more prone to bacterial infections if you're using way too much. So you really only want to use a pea-sized amount. Mm -hmm. um, a pea-sized amount will do it. Um, so not more. And the, the key to this is not only soaking prior, but really rubbing in the the, the steroid ointment sufficiently. And what that means is a good minute and a half of rubbing it in. Um, there really should be nothing on the surface. Um, so it's instruction and education uh, is so important in these conditions. It is critically important because you can be using the right treatment in the wrong way and you're not going to get better. And yeah. Um, why is it important to, to treat lichen sclerosis, even if someone you know says the itching isn't so bad. And sometimes there is no itching. It doesn't always itch, by the way. But so if someone is feeling better and you tell them, okay, now I want you to put your steroid on once a week or whatever your protocol is, why is it important to do that if someone's not having symptoms? Yes. So, so the important thing is with steroid regimens, you want to get down to a goal of a maintenance regimen, which in general, for, for me, I recommend twice a week. The reason I recommend that is because the steroid basically, because of the half-life, it stays in the skin for about three to four days. Mm -hmm. So if you do it twice a week, you have constant coverage of decreasing that inflammation. Now, once someone's feeling better, they may think, oh, I can go off of the steroid. Um, and you may be able to go off and not really have symptoms. But I believe that it's really important to continue a maintenance dose for two reasons. Number one, the roller coaster of symptoms and treating and symptoms and treating is really disruptive to somebody's quality of life. Um, another reason is because of prevention of, of scarring or further worsening um, of, of the condition. And then the biggest reason is prevention of vulvar cancer and precancer. And really, we have a really good study. It was a seven-year study um, done by Gail Fisher out, out in Australia. And it's really one of the longest-term studies we have on this that really showed that maintenance application of a topical steroid, so twice a week, really did prevent the, um, the, the development of vulvar precancer, we call that VIN, um, and vulvar cancer. I quote that study all the time because it is so important for women to know that they are not going to get vulvar cancer if they have lichen sclerosis, if they continue to treat 
and they continue to have someone take a look to make sure nothing is going on. And in that study, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think no one in that study got vulvar cancer who was using maintenance therapy. Is that correct? You are correct. So in the treatment arm, the people that were compliant or they they kept with their twice a week um, maintenance regimen, none of them developed precancer. None of them. I mean, think about that. None. I mean, because it's scary. Let's just put it out there. It is very scary when you get the diagnosis of lichen sclerosis. And of course, the first thing you do is go online and look at it and you see that it is associated with vulvar cancer and it's terrifying. And it is so important to appreciate the fact that if it is treated appropriately and if you continue treatment, you will not get vulvar cancer. Talk about Absolutely. how often someone does get vulvar cancer with lichen sclerosis if it's not treated appropriately. Yes. So in that study, it was 4.6%. In other studies, it's quoted anywhere between 5 to 8%. So this is still very low, but why risk? It's, it's high for something that's preventable with proper management. And so not everyone that has lichen sclerosis is going to get vulvar cancer. It's really people that are not following a treatment regimen or have not been to a gynecologist in a while, but it's always important to get these things identified and get them under control before anything like that develops. As long as we're on the topic of vulvar cancer, not all vulvar cancer is associated with lichen sclerosis. And sometimes vulvar itching is an indication of vulvar cancer. And it's one of those cancers you don't hear about very often. If someone has breast cancer, they're comfortable talking about it. If someone has ovarian cancer, they will shout it to the world, I have ovarian cancer. When someone has vulvar cancer, it's not something that they're mentioning at lunch. So talk a little bit about vulvar cancer. How common is it? What are the risk factors and how does someone know they might have it? Yes. So this is why it's so important to look, right? And and if you do have a sore that's not healing or something that's bleeding in that area on the skin, it is absolutely essential to get it checked out. Vulvar cancer certainly is not common, but it's enough where we need to need to monitor and be aware um, of these things because the treatment generally for vulvar cancer cancer is removing it surgically, um, which can be a pretty big surgery, a, a big surgery. And so um, it's really important to monitor these things. Um, it's also important to to see a specialist if you're concerned that there may be something that looks like cancer or a biopsy shows a precancer or a cancer. For too many doctors, anything below the belly button is a no-fly zone. And increasingly, we're seeing this. Women are told you don't need to see a gynecologist for an annual exam if you don't have a pap test. Internists particularly are telling their women over the age of 50, you're done with a gynecologic exam, but then they don't look themselves. What do you do if you're a woman and you go to an internist who, who doesn't look? Do you have that internist, even if you're having no problems, we're just talking, you know, I think it's easier if someone is having a problem, then they get themselves to a specialist. But, but what about the woman who feels fine? She doesn't even know her vulva is there. Does she need to have someone look at her vulva every year? I believe that you do. It's like any other part of your body. And remember that when you see a dermatologist for a skin check to check for skin cancer, oftentimes they don't look at the vulva. Um, the tables are not set up with um, with footrests to see everything in a way that a gynecologist would. And so I think it's important to continue your gynecological care, even after menopause, because there's so much more that we do than just a pap test. Well, you and I are certainly on the same page with that. And skin conditions that occur other places on the body can also occur on the vulva. And you know, we, we, we have seen vulvar psoriasis, vulvar melanomas. The list is very long. And I always say someone's, someone's got to look at your vulva. It's, it's really, really important. And the, the, the other surprising thing is sometimes a trip to the dentist can prompt looking at your vulva. Tell us about that. An example of that would be a condition called lichen planus, which is another autoimmune condition. And it it typically affects the inside of the mouth. And so oftentimes a dentist will notice this lacy white appearance on the inside of your cheek and they'll tell you, oh, this looks like lichen planus. And if that's the case, then make sure that you see a gynecologist because you could possibly have lichen planus on the inside uh, portion that 
that vestibule that we've been talking about or inside the vagina as well, especially if you're having symptoms, it's always good to get that checked out. Do most dentists mention the vulvar aspects of lichen planus? No, they do not. They do not. <laughs> so why am I not why, surprised? That's why it's so important. And it's funny because um, if I do diagnose someone with lichen planus, I say, make sure you see your dentist because it's good to get um, the mouth checked as well. What tips do you have for a woman who has an itchy vulva to feel more comfortable while she's either waiting for her diagnosis or in the process of treatment? So breathable fabrics, keeping things from touching that area are very important. An ice pack can be very helpful for itch. Um, if you need to go to bed with frozen peas, then that's completely fine. A lot of itching happens at bedtime at night, um, when we're kind of settling down, that's when the vulva starts to really flare up. And so an ice pack on that area can be very helpful. Um, you can try a, um, an allergy medication, like a Benadryl or, um, or one of these allergy medications that you take once a day, like a Zyrtec or Allegra or Claritin. Those can be helpful as well. Um, you really do not want to scratch the area. If you have nails, um, you either one to cut them short, or you can put a pair of gloves on to avoid scratching the area, um, really to avoid aggra ag aggravating um, that area. And then you want to keep products away from that area. Let that area breathe, avoid products on that area um, until you really figure out what's going on and get a diagnosis. What is your take on Aquaphor? Aquaphor agrees with some people, but not all people. Um, Aquaphor has lanolin in it. So if you're fine with lanolin, then it's okay. But if you're irritated by that, then it's not the best option for you. Um, some people like Vaseline, but then other people are really ir irritated or sensitive to petroleum. So that might not be a good option. It's really patient dependent. And so I like to give my patients a number of options um, for, for emollients. Earlier on, we were talking about the impact of incontinence and how irritating urine can be. And that's certainly one of the challenges we have. I mean, obviously, we're going to we want to treat the incontinence, we want to eliminate that, but that's not always a quick fix. And what do you tell women as far as getting rid of urine as an irritant on their vulva? Do you have any tips for that? Yes. So I think that it's important to wash to wash off the area with just plain water. You can use a peri bottle or a squirt bottle. Um, some people find that a barrier like an aquaphor can be helpful just to prevent um, the skin from being irritated by urine. And then with panty liners and pads, obviously it's best to avoid them, but sometimes we need these things. So using organic cotton, um, no fragrances, um, no coloring or dyes um, is really important as well. And if you need a pad because you're incontinent, make sure that the pad is not irritating, not too tight, and certainly not fragranced. The hardest thing for a lot of women listening is to say, okay, great, you're in Washington. You know, Dr. Stryker's clinic is in Chicago. I'm in Iowa. <laughs> Tell women what they can do, how they can they can find someone with some expertise in vulvar conditions. It's not always a gynecologist, correct? So, so talk about finding an expert. Yes. So it really depends on what condition it is um, as far as if it's a pain condition versus a skin condition. Um, for lichen sclerosis specifically, there is an organization, a nonprofit organization called Lichen Sclerosis Support Network, and they actually have a directory of lichen sclerosis um, providers. And these can be dermatologists, gynecologists, even urologists, um, a urogynecologist. So there's many different, um, there's many different doctors that have an interest or an expertise in vulvar conditions. Um, you can also look at a directory, uh, ISWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Um, they have a provider database. ISSM um, has a provider database as well. So a lot of these main yeah. societies are going to have um, have really good databases of providers that you can search. And, and I will put all these organizations and the links in the program notes want to also mention that your website is amazing. The Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders. Talk about, I mean, that really, if, if every doctor would just spend an hour or two on your website, they would know a lot more than they know. 
Thank you. Before they go to the so talk about your website because it's directed for consumers, for patients. But having said that, um, it's a it's a vulvar education. So where how do they find your website? Absolutely. And I've had fellow gynecologists who have said, I look at your website. I, you know, if I have a patient and I'm not sure what to do, I'll quickly search. So it's www.volvodinia.com. And I'm sure you'll link that. Yes. Um, but, but we have a, um, a whole section of what we treat. And this is information that Dr. Goldstein and myself have put together on all of the different vulvar conditions and genitopelvic pain conditions that we see at the CVVD. And if you have lichen sclerosis, we have an hour and 18 minute webinar that is completely comprehensive on lichen sclerosis, including all of the data. It's really geared towards different levels. So if you're a provider, if you're a patient, you can really get something out of it. And that's available linked through our website. It's on YouTube. Um, It's also linked to my bio on Instagram. Um, And in addition, we have a gallery of photos um, for lichen sclerosis. So if you have any questions or you want to look, see what things look like, um, these are patients that have graciously uh, contributed to our library to show what these conditions look like. Because for providers, it's really pattern recognition with identifying vulvar dermatoses or these skin conditions. And for patients, it's helpful to see something and say, oh, okay, that's that looks a little like me. Um, maybe I should find out um, if that's what's going on and maybe that maybe that's what's causing my symptoms. All of those links will be in the program notes. But quite frankly, I think that is going to be such an enormous help to women to have that kind of resource. So, so thank you for that. What else? Last words, what, what would you like women to know? What, what would you like to say? Well, you know, another resource would be yeah. um, another resource would also be my Instagram. So oh, I can be yes. found- talk about your You're so good on Instagram. <laughs> so I started my Instagram back in 2019 when I joined the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders. Uh, previous to that, I was in academic medicine for almost 10 years teaching medical students how to be OBGYNs and running a sexual health clinic um, at major um, urban institutions. And I decided when I joined the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders, I was really going to gear all of that education to patients and fellow practitioners. And so I really like to break down the why behind a lot of these conditions, because I think it helps us understand what the treatments are and how we diagnose these conditions. So my Instagram has education based posts and research based medicine um, on all of the conditions that I treat. My daughter is a sex therapist who treats women with vulvar pain and sexual pain. And she's the one that told me about your Instagram. She said, do you know Dr. Jill Kraft? And I said, well, of course I do. She's academic. Everyone knows who she is in this world. She said, no, do you know her Instagram? And I said, no. And I started following you on Instagram and it's so good. So good. And you know, more important, it's, it's you educate so many women. I mean, what you do in terms of we all want to make a difference and you make such a huge difference, not only in making women more comfortable and knowing their bodies, but in preventing vulvar cancers. Because there are not a lot of Instagrams out there about the vulva, just saying. And that's huge. Huge. It's true. It's true. My biggest wish is to empower people with vulvas to really take control of their health and really not have any shame associated with this part of their body. Um, These conditions are often delayed in diagnosis, like in sclerosis, an average of five year delay in diagnosis. And that's unacceptable. We really need to become more comfortable with looking at the vulva, both as a practitioner, as well as patients. And I think that if we do that and we talk about it and we teach the next generation what a vulva is and how to 
what the proper, proper terms are for this. I have a three-year-old daughter. She knows that the vulva's on the outside and the vagina's on the inside. And she will tell anybody. That <laughs> I yes. bet, I bet. But I'm so proud of that because I, it's empowering. It's, it, we, we lift ourselves up. We can take control of these conditions. Same with menopause. We, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we take control back. And so that's my biggest wish through, through Instagram and being so public with this is really to give people the power to manage these conditions or find the right provider or not deal with itching for 10 years um, before they find out what the cause is. We have to normalize the vulva and find it just as easy to say, I have a vulvar itch as it is to say, I have a headache. Absolutely agree. Thank you so much for taking this time with us and check the program notes for all of these links. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Bye.